in Mark's incomparable style, <coughs> excuse me, when he has something to say, he says it in a hurry and he says it very directly. And as we read the words from the scripture this morning, <coughs> probably you like me are struggling with whether to laugh or to cry or to hide. Because what a request and on what a journey at this moment in time. Road trip all the way to Jerusalem, it literally is, according to the text today, as we begin reading in verse 32. But really, we need to back up just a little bit. Back up to the discussion that was ongoing on his way to Jerusalem. Jesus was going through Judea on the way to Jerusalem, and he was followed not only by his disciples, but also by a crowd of other followers who were following along, listening to the stories he would tell and the teachings he would utter. His first teaching in that chapter 10 that he elaborates on was the teachings on divorce. And it seemed very harsh to disciples because they were very used to putting a woman away for almost any cause by that time of the day when Jesus came along. And Moses himself had given permission to put away a wife. All they had to do is write a risk of, of divorcement. Jesus, however, went back to the original intention for marriage all the way back to the garden saying man was created for woman and that the two should become one flesh. And they said, well, how can this be? And how, Moses said what he said. And Jesus said, Moses said what he said because of the hardness of your heart. And their hearts were pierced. But they didn't stop there. They continued on down the road. And as they walked along, little children began coming to him seeking a blessing from him. But, you know, really, rabbis were not to be bothered by children. And they were too unimportant in the culture of that day to get a lot of notice and attention. So in that way, it would be unheard of for children to come and force themselves, so to speak, with their, probably their mothers as well, I'm sure, on Jesus. But Jesus said, no, don't leave them alone. And at the very end of that, he said this, made this statement, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And again, they were dumbfounded. He continued on with his stories about the rich young ruler who came to him who was keeping all the law and following all the commandments. And Jesus repeated to him after he asked Jesus the question, what must I do to attain eternal life? And Jesus said to him, obey the law, do what's right. He says, I've done all that. I've done it all. Then he says, curiously, with love in his eyes as he looked at the man, he said to him, Go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor. The man was very rich. He said, then you will have treasure in heaven, and then you come and follow me. And the man went away, very sad. And Jesus made another statement to the disciples, how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples, again, were amazed, just struck by what Jesus was saying. And they said, well, if a rich man can't get there, who can enter? And he said, with people, it is impossible there in verse 27. But all things are possible with God. And then comes Peter along, who I'm sure is just being Peter. I mean, overwhelmed with all that's being said and being spoken about in this amazing man that they had been following all this time. And he, left, he makes a statement to him, said, we have left it all, Lord. To come and follow you. And then Jesus adds the little twist. He looks at me and says, It's all going to be replaced a hundredfold, blessed in this world, 
And then he gives a list of all the things they're going to receive, children and grandchildren, blah, 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 blah. And then he says, and persecutions. Whoa, that's not the blessing they were looking for, right? And after that statement, then we get to this part right here where he enters in after talking to Peter to this discussion where for the third time in the Gospel of Mark, he tells them about his coming passion, about how he would be crucified. And here he adds the element of shame to this third story of his crucifixion in verses 33 through 34. And these disciples who were following him, the scripture says something very pointedly. It says, the disciples were amazed, again it says that, and the others fearful, fearful. Remember that, we're going to come back to that. And then James and John, filled with either amazement or fear or perhaps both, looked at Jesus and said, we have a request we want to give you and we want you to say yes. That sounds like some of my children said when they were about that tall, right? You ever hear your children say that? Your grandchildren are really good at saying it, right? I've got something I want from you, and I want you to go ahead and tell me you're going to say yes. Well, Jesus was way too sharp for that, right? He said, well, tell me what it is first, you know. And then they made this request. Now, can you imagine you've been following along in this context, and with all these stories of self-denial and hardship and ache and pain and struggle, here in the context of the, the 12, and also the other followers who are following him around, two part people say, I want to sit on your right. I want my brother to sit on your left. Don't worry about the rest of those disciples. They're second rate anyway. I know the text doesn't say that, but they had to be thinking that to have the gall to say that, right? I mean, they were so self-absorbed. All they could think about, perhaps, was they wanted a place secure for themselves. Now, perhaps there's another reason. I'm going to come back to that. But can you imagine how those other ten felt? The text goes on to say, well, they got into a squabble pretty quickly, right? Who are you to be asking to sit on the right or left? But Jesus sees what's happening to his disciples. Of course, he doesn't want that to happen. So he changes the story around a little bit and comes back again and says, that's not how it's going to be among you. First of all, I can't tell you who's going to sit on my right or my left. That's not even my job to give. That's the Father's. Then he asks that penetrating question, are you willing to be baptized with my baptism? Are you willing to drink from the cup that I drink from? And, of course, they say, oh, sure, well, yeah, we're ready. You know, we can do it. And then I think Jesus says a surprising thing. He says, indeed, you will. But I'm not for sure that they have a clue about what he's talking about. But the rest of their history would show that, indeed, they would be able to do it. But at this point, they're not quite ready to receive it all, are they? They're not quite ready to get there. Now, whenever you think about this, it does seem a little comical. Uh, elevate us, please. We'd like the elevator to the top. We're going up to the penthouse. We'd like corner offices. And whenever we have a banquet, we'd like to sit at the head of the table with you. The rest of them, well, you've got to scatter them out wherever. But be sure that we're first and we're second, right? The Gospels are so unhappy with this story that they all record it differently, which scholars love, of course. You know, Luke makes some fr phrase about there was a dispute among them and doesn't even say what it's about. <laughs> he doesn't even want to talk about it. Matthew says, well, it's actually her mother that came forward and asked for her sons to be put there on either side, trying to take the heat off the two disciples, right? 
everybody's embarrassed, really, except the two who asked for it. I don't think they're embarrassed yet. You know, they just want what they want, right? And as we listen to that story, you might, you, at first glance, we just kind of go, man, the gall of these people. I wonder if they've been listening at all to what he just taught them. I mean, all these stories of great need that they had in their life and all this talk about becoming like a little child, and here they wanted to be elevated to king status. They just don't seem to be getting it. They're insensitive to the others around them. Their desire for privilege and power is taking them completely out of the context of what Jesus is saying. It's not only embarrassing to hear you wonder how Jesus could entrust the kingdom to people like these. But remember, they have not yet been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. They've not yet been fulfilled in all that they're going to learn from Jesus. They're still on the road toward Jerusalem. They're not there yet. And along the way, we need to stop and take a hard look at this because this is either one of the most self-centered moments in the story of the Gospels or perhaps it's something else. You see, when it says in verse 32 that on their way, all these teachings were affecting them by causing some of them to have fear, the larger group of disciples, and the disciples themselves, the 12, to be amazed. The word amazement really is a combination of two words, two kinds of feelings. And in these two kinds of feelings, we get the understanding of amazement. These two emotions are admiration and fear. When you mix admiration and fear together, you get amazement. And you see, in this story, Jesus is walking out ahead of them, as he often did. The twelve were behind him, and behind them were the other crowds. So everybody was following this man to his certain death, now they heard it for the third time, into the most dangerous place on the planet for Jesus, and he seems unconcerned about it. Now, authors speculate on what kind of body language he was, he was showing. I don't know. I don't know if he was walking down through there like, man, we're going to do this thing. I got a feeling probably not. He might have been walking tentatively, possibly, but I, I don't think he was. I think he was, face was set like flint, like flint, steadfast to finish that journey. And that's what leaders do. They have a vision that compels them to follow, and they're willing to do whatever it takes to complete that vision. And other people are amazed by that. They, are, they admire it anytime a leader steps forward in such a case as that. But they also have a, a kind of innate fear. You know, if we keep hanging around with this guy, we're going to get ourselves killed. I mean, he's going to Jerusalem. We're getting close. We can almost smell it. You can almost hear them say, don't you want to think this over again? Let's go back to the wilderness and pray some more. I mean, after all, this journey is going to be your end. And everything we've planned and everything we've thought, you keep unraveling it. Like with all these stories, how are we to make sense out of all of this if you're gone? And yet, the journey continues. And then he gives them the answer to that question. And I think that answer really answers both possibilities. Whether they're self-centered or whether they're filled with fear, either answer from Jesus is 
simply this. You didn't come here to serve yourselves or to be served. Neither did I. I didn't come to be served, but rather to serve. I came to give my life away, and when you took up your cross and decided to follow me, that was your calling as well. You see, we are very much like that. Our mouth drops open with amazement at what happened to them. But which ones of us are not constantly worried and fearful about our own security? Which one of us is not fearful about the security of our teenagers when they start driving? Or our children anytime they leave our side and go off to play or take a trip with some other, another family? There's a little bit of fear there involved, isn't there? Which one of us is, if we lost all that we had, would not be fearful about who would feed us next week, who would take care of us when our moment of need came that was too great for us to meet? Humanity lives with the struggle of fear. It's not all just about self-centeredness, although that's there too. Think how hard we struggle to be number one. One ugly author I was reading had this to say about pastors. They want to pastor the best church in the suburbs with the nicest salary and the nicest parsonage. And I went, that's not always true. It was kind of true when most pastors began and they were in those little small houses. They looked at the pastors in the big houses and thought, I'd like to serve that church. Perhaps what they really meant is I'd like to drive that car too and have that big congregation and be looked up to with respect and have a seat at the bishop's table at conference. Yeah, pastors walk, male and female alike, in the same shoes that other people walk in. We're all tempted to center our life around what elevates our life. Every one of us are tempted that way. Now, in the beginning, that temptation is very base and low, but as we become more sophisticated and more faithful, the temptations become more subtle, but they're still there. We can become so, so focused on taking care of ourselves, we forgot that we promised Jesus, we trusted him to take care of us. Who's watching the stock market lately if you're over 55? Those going 40 are going, nah, it'll be fine. Yeah, if I live another 30 years, it'll be fine before I start using it. But, you know, if you're over 55, you're kind of like, hey, you know, big fall, not a good thing right now. A little difference in perspective, right? Who, which of us is not concerned and ha- facing fears that we have to either give into or overcome? Let's just say on a monthly basis. Because after all, I've seen much of your servanthood. I've seen you serve one another. I've seen you serve others. I know you know what service means. I know that you understand what it means to, to commit to a, some part of your life, at least being a servant of Christ, and I commend you for that. And I don't think that the Lord Jesus expected us to lay down everything for the most part and follow him But let me tell you, when he does call you to do that, it's a sobering moment in your life. And it's a very hard moment in your life to live into. Because it doesn't happen immediately. The first few years of a pastor's ministry, they're struggling just trying to figure out what they're supposed to do. 
what they need to do, what they're supposed to do, what the district superintendent thinks they're supposed to do, what the people in my congregation supposed to think I'm supposed to do, and hopefully, in the end of the day, when they're thinking about it, they're thinking about what does God expect me to do. That becomes the disquieting moment, however, when God says, I expect you to give it all. Uh... What part of all do you mean, Lord? And he said, everything between A and L, I expect you to give it all. But he also, in Christ, expects every one of us to deny ourselves, as we talked about last week, take up our cross and follow him. Being willing to give up whatever may come our way, using the principle of choosing to be a servant as the answer to all those fears. Because quite frankly, once you've chosen to be a servant, how can people hurt you? Every now and then, people would ask me that are closer than others, why don't you let so-and-so do that? Why don't you let them talk to you that way? I said, why not? Their words don't hurt me. I didn't start out that way. My choice to serve came slowly. Sometimes it was forced upon me, but fortunately, occasionally, along the way, on my road to Jerusalem, I was able to see that the amazing thing happened when I chose to be less concerned about myself and more concerned about others. I became different. Event by event, person by person, church by church, decade after decade until thank God I am not anywhere close to the person I was when I started this journey and thank God I'm not all the way there yet to where I need to be but God is still calling me on the road and teaching me along the way and encouraging me by the power of the Holy Spirit to do something radical to make a decision of my own free will that he gave me to choose to serve others above choosing myself. And yes, there are times when it's a struggle and it's a fight. There are times when a sense of my own self-esteem gets in the way or I, my own well-being gets in the way, and sometimes I make decisions that others think are self-serving. I understand that. I hope and pray that God understands the big picture, and I believe he does, not only for my life but for yours as well. Be clear, the life I'm talking about, servanthood, is much different from the life of occasionally volunteering in the church. As a volunteer, you're in control. Isn't that the wonderful part? Nobody makes you volunteer in church. You say, well, you haven't heard some of the speeches pastors have given me over the years. <laughs> okay, I know, pastors are bad to put pressure on you every now and then. You know those other guys, not this guy, right? But the reality is, in the end... You are in charge of your volunteerism. And you'll never reap the benefits of servanthood until you lay your volunteer mantle down and pick up the mantle of servanthood. Till you're ready to put it on and embrace it. Here I am, Lord. I hope you use what's best in me most. But occasionally if you call me to do something that's utterly out of my realm, I'm willing to do whatever you call me to do because I've gotten my cross upon my shoulders, and I'm willing to drag it wherever we go in your name.
And the amazing thing is, that as you drag that cross through the years, and many of you can stand up and testify to this, I know, you've found it not to be burdensome at all. But rather, it gives meaning and purpose to your life in a whole new way. Whether you're tending to that patient in the hospital, whether you're helping that neighbor across the street who doesn't deserve it, whether you're going that 12th and 14th mile to help your grandchildren, or whether you're patiently listening to your youth. It doesn't matter. Servanthood is the mark of the follower of Christ. I did not come to serve. Rather, excuse me, see how easy it is to get it wrong? I did not come to be served, but to serve. It's a simple, simple perspective. And once we shift to it, I promise you this, your life will never be the same. And that is the call as you come to this morning to receive the elements of communion in this table. It is a table represented and set by a servant who set it with his very blood and his very life. It comes with a promise that your life will be restored a hundredfold, both on earth and with persecutions. Yes, some of it will be difficult. But even the difficult things become blessings when you're serving the Lord Jesus Christ for the work of his kingdom. What does it look like, this chosen life that you choose, this life of promise that you choose? It looks like the words of Francis Assisi when he wrote, O divine master, grant that I may not seek so much to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. And it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. May it be so with all the children of God. Wherever they are in their life and whatever fears you're harboring this morning, whatever moments of selfishness you're struggling with, I invite you to bring them all to this chancel rail as you kneel in the presence of your Savior, for he is ready through the power of his Spirit to shovel gallons of grace into your life. He's ready to fill you up to where the servanthood that you offer is the ingredient to life's great joy. I invite you to come to his table made possible by his willing to serve us all.